0: Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Would you remain standing for just a little bit longer? Thanks, Jason. Father in heaven, we, um, we commend this time to you in this uh, new year. Um, we want this uh, year to be about you. We want our hearts um, to grow in affection for the Savior. And we know that it begins with your word. And so I just pray that you'd make our hearts real open and tender to your word, and that we would understand it and apply it. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's the Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday of 2022. We just have a little bit of existential angst, right? Just a little bit. Uh, So, you know, we had begun a sermon series on Advent. Of course, we looked through Isaiah And then we looked at the Christmas passages, and it's um, now we're at at the Epiphany passage. Uh, So Epiphany is actually January 6th. That is, so on December 25th through January 6th are the 12 days of Christmas, right? And uh, so that'll happen this week. And uh, it's really a sweet holiday. Uh, Epiphany uh, commemorates the moment, right, when not only the Jews realized that their king had returned, but also the pagans and the Gentiles, as they're represented in these magi, they celebrated the return of the king. See, Jesus, you have to understand, is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. And magi who traveled from the east represent an appropriate response to the good news of Christ's arrival for all people everywhere, right? Right? So uh, Epiphany, or uh, Three Kings Day, as, you call, as we would call it um, in Puerto Rico, uh, it's this beautiful tradition. Um, now, I grew up in the, in the States, so I didn't celebrate this, but in Puerto Rico, this is a big deal. So what, what happens is um, January 5th, the night before Epiphany, Three Kings Day, all the kids would uh, get a shoebox, and they'd fill it with grass, and they'd put it underneath the Christmas tree. And the next morning when they'd wake up, the grass would be gone and it would be replaced with tons of gifts. And I'm talking about like as many gifts on Three Kings Day or Epiphany as you would get on Christmas Day. It is a big deal in Latin America and Puerto Rico specifically. And the idea is that the three kings on their way to baby Jesus stopped at your house, ate the grass, and they thanked you with a few gifts. They didn't give you the myrrh, the frankincense, or the gold, but you got something else, probably like a PlayStation. I don't know. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really sweet holiday. It's a big deal where we come from. And uh, there's a lot of sentimentality tied to Epiphany or Three Kings Day. Um, and, and not only, I mean, for here, it's the whole holiday season. And, and it, honestly, because of all the sentimentality, there is this temptation to overlook the horror in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 is perhaps the bloodiest chapter in the entire New Testament. So in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, they keep this book called the Synaxarium. Does anyone, has anyone heard that? A few of you? Um, basically, the book is a compilation of biographies of the lives of the early Christians who were killed for their faith. And so these historic churches have done an incredible job of preserving the histories of these martyrs. Now, I mention this because the Synaxarium records that 14,000 infants, 14,000 infants were slaughtered at the hands of Herod's soldiers as he attempted to kill Jesus. 14,000 martyrs under the age of two. Happy epiphany, I guess. You know, you see why this is a big deal. Now we don't always talk about the details of these stories, do we? Like we we prefer the sentimental claymation version of Jesus in the manger. We we don't want to ruin Christmas season with stories of death and crosses. Uh, we like the you know seven pound six ounce version of Jesus, who probably didn't even cry when he was born, and much less defy the thrones of and the greatest rulers of the earth, right? But that's not what we get in our text. Matthew chapter 2 is political dynamite. So you like, no one reflects on the birth of Jesus as if it were just this cute story. The details are actually really unnerving. And so we've got to pay attention to the details. The author, Matthew, has this really sophisticated way of retelling the stories surrounding Jesus' birth. Um, He's certainly telling us like the facts, the historical facts surrounding it. But he's telling us, he's transmitting this story in a way that the reader, us, we can discover and identify identify with the various reactions and responses to Christ, right? So Matthew, the author, actually expects us to see ourselves in the story. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study this text that Nina just read for us. And we're going to examine the three responses by three different groups that kind of come up in this text. And I think that's actually a really helpful way of reading the Bible uh, because there's this pattern that is forming in the New Testament. In the Bible, every time a person is confronted with the reality and the claims of Christ, there's one of three responses. Either they worship him, uh, or they dismiss and relativize him, or they try to kill him, right? Right? No one's just touched by the sentimentality of Christ's peacefulness. You kill him, you dismiss him, or you worship him. And uh, so Jesus is really a polarizing figure. So with that introduction, uh, let's begin by examining the first character and his response to the news of Jesus. So at the time of Jesus' birth, Herod the Great, figure number one, he was the ruler. He was a cruel tyrant, He was actually guilty of killing his own wife and a few of his sons and relatives. We're told that at Herod's own funeral, he had several nobles from the ruling class killed so that there would be people mourning at his funeral. He was a maniac. He's known for his ruthlessness. Uh, But he's also known for another thing. He's known for his building projects. He actually financed several important temples and theaters and palaces. Among those projects, he he financed the, the Jewish temple and the restoration of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So Herod, follow this, is credited with restoring the temple so that the Jews could offer their sacrifices once again. And as a result, Herod came to be known as Herod, king of the Jews. Herod. King of the Jews. That's important to understand because when the Magi come into town, they ask, verse 2, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And that is what awakened Herod's anger. I mean, Herod is the king of the Jews, and there are these, yet there are these rumors of a baby of this new king, and this kind of explains his fury, right? Um, Later in Matthew chapter 2, you don't have it there, but in your Bibles in verse 16, it says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, which we learned about, right? Verse 12, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from uh, the Magi. That was verse 16. Now, Herod... Here's the thing. He understands there can only be one king. One king will always supplant the other. And to recognize that a new king had come means that the present king has to step down in submission. And so Herod attempted to do what all people attempt to do when they're not ready to give up their thrones. They try to kill the new authority. They try to kill God. So for Herod, he literally tried to hunt down this newborn king and murder him. And while that behavior seems very primitive to us, can I suggest we kind of do something very similar, even as modern people, but we do it in more sophisticated ways. Uh, Do y'all remember the very famous words of Nietzsche? God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Right, we're still trying to kill God in our modern world. Now Nietzsche is not saying that God was killed in a literal sense, rather, he's, he's making the case that the Christian God is no longer a credible source for absolute truth or morals, right? Uh, the 20th century uh, witnessed a surge of polished thinkers in a variety of disciplines that have, has made belief in Christ seem primitive and like, outdated, right? In the scientific disciplines, the world is seen exclusively through empir- empirical or naturalistic means, right? The notions of resurrections or miracles, right? That's all That's all in, to be relegated to the world of mythology, right? Scientific people don't believe in that. In literature, the historical critical method, that plus the, the mythology of the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, right? It's actually reduced the Bible into this document that smart people just should not trust. In the disciplines of philosophy, important thinkers like Derrida—we we talked about this in churchwide discipleship—he introduced concepts like uh, deconstruction, and and when improperly understood, it's it's leading people to like separate meanings from objects, right? It's weird, and and all these tools in these various disciplines are great for what they're up to, except that they're misused to dethrone. God, our culture is deeply suspicious of authority and power. And that's what Jesus Christ represents, authority and power. So instead of submitting to that authority and power, what we do is we create an intellectual culture that allows us to usurp that power and authority. And we put ourselves at the center of our own reality. And we use our academic tools to explain the non-reality of God so that the only functional God around in this universe is us, right? We are our own rulers. We are the kings of our own hearts. We are the kings of our rights, our dreams, our decisions, and we have this sort of pseudo-freedom. We're going to talk about pseudo-freedom this week in our church-wide discipleship. But what this amounts to is this context where de- denying the existence of God appears intellectual, while belief in God seems archaic and anti-intellectual. As to say, God is dead. Now, if you're in academic circles and you're there, we have several PhD students in our, in our congregation, you know, you, got, you have to start hiding your deepest beliefs in order to be respected, right? Loyalty to Jesus is it's kind of perceived as a little bit cringy, a little bit embarrassing. Authority of Christ is reduced to ethics for primitive people, people who aren't free thinkers, right? Now, l- let me just make one clarification. Because there is a long sort of tradition of spirituality in the United States, generic belief in God It's not completely rejected, not even in Denver. But it's serious belief in Christ that's embarrassing, right? I mean, it's okay to say that you believe in God, but you better stay balanced. You know know how we use that word, right? Stay balanced. A little bit of religion's okay. Don't take this too seriously, right? And so you and I, we're not permitted to admit our deepest love and affection for Jesus without sounding, sounding a little bit weird, a little bit anti-intellectual, right? Have you, I mean, like, have you ever felt a little bit marginalized because you love Jesus a little too much in certain circles? I mean, have you not ever felt the walls kind of close in for me? You have. If you haven't, I would ask, have you, have you really submitted your life to Christ. I mean, are you afraid that people will stop taking you seriously if you love Jesus too much? Maybe, and maybe you even rationalize a lukewarm faith by explaining that you're kind of modern and smart to move beyond just a generic spirituality. But let me ask you this. Is that actually how you're keeping your throne? Is that another way of just killing God? Just like Herod That's just a sophisticated way to keep your throne, you see. Herod did it, and uh, we're still doing it today. So that's the first character, Herod. His response is to kill God. There is a second group that is briefly mentioned. Look there in verses 4 and 5. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. Okay, so the chief priests and the scribes of the people, these are the religious people. These are the people who went to church. They're the people who had knowledge of the coming Messiah. These uh, are the ones who knew all about him from their books. In fact, Herod didn't have any of this knowledge. He had to go to the experts for help. Uh, These religious leaders, they knew the prophecy they knew that 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah prophesied that a king would be born in Bethlehem. Look there at verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a quote from Micah 5.2. It's a really impressive prophecy, by the way, right? We've talked about this before, but there's a lot of things you can choose in your life, but you can't choose the city that your mama is in when she gives birth to you, right? Uh, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's a, a miraculous f- fulfillment. Uh, Bethlehem was an extremely small city with a very small population. Now, Herod would not have known He wouldn't have known that if the religious leaders would not have helped him to understand the Old Testament. Uh, Now, now what's interesting, though, about these religious people is that although they knew about Jesus, they did nothing about it. Like, when you look at all of the nativity scenes, right? They're in people's front yards or on trees or little decorations— when you look at all these nativity scenes, there are no Jewish religious people worshiping, right? I mean, think about this. These pagan magi traveled hundreds, if not thousands of miles to find Jesus. Meanwhile, religious people of the same religion could not walk six miles to find him and to celebrate the birth of their king. What is going on? Clearly, they were not that impressed by Christ. And then we're going to learn, later in Matthew, we're going to learn more about these religious leaders. Maybe their situation can be summed up by the great modern prophetess Alanis Morissette riffing off one of her great songs. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a spoon. You know, it's like having, needing a spoon when someone's offering you a spoon when you have 10,000 spoons. You just don't have any need for spoons, right? Why why do I say this? Listen, these religious people, by tradition, they knew about their promised Messiah. They just had no need for him. He's just another spoon. Let me explain how this works. So in the Old Testament, God put into place this system of laws and sacrifices. And the people are supposed to obey the laws and sacrifice animals for their sins. The blood of the animals did not actually pardon their sins, but these slain animals served to point the people to their need for God's provision of mercy. Right? And so the laws and the sacrifices were an act of faith in the coming Savior it's it right not a means of forgiveness that's how come and we've talked about this before john the baptist when he first lays eyes on jesus he sees him as a sacrificial animal he says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world right so the religious people they liked religion but they hated jesus The religious leaders created this system of theology that taught that God would accept you if you kept the law. In other words, we might say it like this in, in modern parlance. Be a good person and God will accept you. Right? Isn't that how we say it? And listen, these religious people, they were legalists. They kept the law much better than us. In terms of being good people, they're better than us. They looked down upon people who were not upright like they were. When they saw Jesus, the Messiah, they saw him as being unnecessary to their religion. Just another spoon and a sea of spoons. You see the problem? It's that Jesus was just a footnote in their religion. Jesus died on a cross, but his death, was unnecessary for them. The religious people dismissed God, relativized his worth, by relying on their own moral performance, their goodness for their acceptance before God. This response to Jesus, you guys, is still present. It's still present in churches. A lot of people believe in Jesus Christ, but he's by and large relativized, right? I mean, some religious people will call upon him when they're in a tight spot, when they're going into hard times, right? But day in, day out, there's no sense of profound desperation for the Savior. I mean, we come to church, right, when it's convenient. We eat the bread and the wine. Uh, it's a part of our tradition. But we're not desperate for him, Right? We think that our lives with or without Jesus in the church would be really kind of the same. There's no sense of this intense desire of leaving our cities to find and worship the newborn king, to adore him, to offer him our lives. Now, while religious people don't deny God, they do something that's more dangerous They just make Christ this extra part, this extra thing to their religious routine and their religious ritual, right? That's a very common response to Christ our King. Listen, if you have never like cried out to God, my God, My king, I can't even live a single moment without your mercy and your forgiveness, saturating my soul. Come, be near to your servant. I am yours. If you've never said those kinds of words, why don't we make 2022 about being honest? Why won't we say those words? Maybe you can take maybe part of your resolutions this this year would be to say those words. Confess that desperation to him. I want us to be more than just like the religious leaders. I don't want it to be another spoon in a sea of spoons. All right. So we've seen two responses from Herod and from the religious leaders. Now let's turn our attention to the final group of uh, characters in the story, uh, the whole reason why we have this, this holiday, this religious holiday called Epiphany. Finally, we have the three kings. All right, just a little bad news up front. Let's just start with the bad news. Contrary to our tradition, there were not three, although they did bring three gifts. It's just plural. We don't know how many. And uh, the other bad news is they're not kings. Uh, They're magi. They're magi. So magi are like Gentile priests who uh, likely practice astrology and dream interpretation. Uh, they were often used to offer wisdom to rulers, right? So they're political officials from royal courts. Now, it was commonly believed in the ancient world that important events on earth would be reflected in the stars. And that's why they're always staring at the sky, and then, of course, the reverse is true. If something happened in the sky that was p- spectacular, it meant that something important was happening on earth. This is how come the Magi say, look in verse 2, they ask, where is he who's been born of a king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, in fact, this concept is present in the prophetic declarations, even in the Old Testament. So for instance, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So the star... That we see over the nativity scene is an important part of the story that Matthew is telling us about this arrival of King Jesus, right? And the star is like more evidence, right, of Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, right? Not only Micah 5.2, but in uh, Numbers 24. So these magi see this star, and they begin this trek from the east. It's likely Armenia or Babylon, in the ancient world it's very common for like royal regimes to send emissaries with convoys to neighboring countries to give gifts of recognition to a new king right it's an act of diplomacy right so apparently their trip was remarkably far because it took quite a bit of time for them to arrive right the, the magi if you'll you'll see does it does it, they didn't just go to the manger where jesus was born by this time, Mary and Joseph have moved from the barn into a house. Look there at verse 11. The Magi, it says of the Magi, in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother. So somehow they've moved. There's some time, a couple years even, or at least several months, has a, there's time that has transpired between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the Magi. It's been quite a trip for them. Jesus is probably at this point, maybe a year old, we don't know. But this is actually why Herod felt compelled to murder all the children ages two and under. Not not just newborns, right? There's this range from newborns all the way up to age two. But what happens next is shocking. First, the magi come to a palace, right? Because that's where kings live. They live in palaces. They quickly noticed that Herod is an imposter, So they didn't offer him the gifts. Rather, they kept looking. Finally, they found him. It didn't matter that Jesus was not robed in purple. These men, these magi knew what was at stake. They didn't find only, you guys, the king of the Jews. They found the king of the whole universe. And they didn't just pay homage to this king. They worshiped him. Look there at verse 11 again. They, going into the house, they saw the child. They fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, frankincense and myrrh. Now just think about this with me, would you? Something happened in the stars that was so spectacular that royal dignitaries from a different country, from a different religion, decided to take a very long and expensive trip. And this trip took months, if not year, over a year. And they kept going until they arrived in an ordinary house only to see a poor, uneducated couple with a baby that smells like a barn. No crowns, no robes, no armies. And in this ordinary house, these magi realize that the world has changed. And so, what did they do? They forsake their own religion. These powerful men forsake their allegiance to their local deities and they convert. They, they forsake their old king and they fall on their knees. And they worship this baby as king, as if he were the one true God. See, like after looking upon this baby, right? Their local deities just seemed silly and trite in comparison. They forsook all of their philosophies because the incarnation of wisdom, the incarnation of truth had arrived in bodily form. In Bethlehem. And these gifts that they brought were like, were deep and profound, well beyond their own comprehension. So the gold and the frankincense, frankincense is incense, those are very typical gifts for kings and even gods. Isaiah actually foresees gifts of gold and frankincense being delivered to Israel. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, It says this, it says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Incredible. They didn't know that Isaiah had already told them the gifts that they were going to bring 700 years earlier. Now, that only accounts for gold and frankincense. But the gift of myrrh, That's actually a very curious gift. So myrrh, if you don't know what that is, is a fragrant oil. It's often used in about two different ways. The oil could be added to wine in order to uh, numb a person who was drinking it. In fact, in Matthew 5, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he tells us that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, right? But he did not take it, right? He wanted to stay sober as he's hanging. But there's another re- way you could use myrrh. It could be used to anoint, to prepare a dead body for a bur- burial. And in John 19, verse 39, John tells us that Nicodemus also, who had, early come, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. I want you to see this connection. The Magi are bringing myrrh. This is an unlikely gift for a baby, but it's an appropriate gift for this baby. Listen, we have a lot of babies in our congregation. I hear them out there. I love these babies in, our, in this church. Y'all keep bringing your babies in here. I love it. Uh, imagine you have a baby, You're having, you had a baby, now you have a baby shower. Everyone's bringing you gifts for this new baby. You get cute baby clothes, little Adidas shoes that they'll never wear, but we pay a lot of money for. Uh, And they get baby toys, right? But then, like, your uncle hands you a card. And you open the card. There's a gift certificate for a prepaid plot of land as a burial site for when the child dies, That's a very expensive gift. Totally out of place at a baby shower. All right, we don't just look at newborn babies and start planning for their deaths, right? That would be out of place. And yet, that's what we have going on in this text. Myrrh. Jesus arrived in the form of a baby. That baby is a king. He has a kingdom He would begin a revolution in a manger. This baby wants to rule you. He wants to rule me. And some people, like Herod, were threatened by, and they tried to kill him. Others were religious. They found Jesus unnecessary for their lives, so they dismissed him. But the ones who would be truly wise, they responded in the only correct way. They worshiped him. They transferred their full loyalty to this king. And this king demands our loyalty and our obedience. But listen, if, if, you have, if you've been checked out, I'll land the plane right here, but I, I, I want to finish right here. I want you to hear this. Most kings come into a new town with their armies to kill and conquer people. That's not what Jesus does. Instead of coming with weapons and armies, Jesus is armed with myrrh. He goes about establishing his kingdom by laying down his sword and taking up his myrrh. Instead of killing and conquering, he allows himself to be killed and conquered. And so this myrrh is foreshadowing his death. This baby king was born to die. Jesus would conquer his enemies by dying for them. That's how come the apostle Paul in Romans 5:10 would say, "For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son." And so we look at these gifts of gold, frankincense, of myrrh, and we say, "King God to die for me." Right? Don't you see? Our God and King, Jesus, the object of our worship, he is the whole reason for this feast. He is unlike any other king, any other religion. Our king conquers by dying for us. Right? That, that's why we can't just interrogate God to see if he agrees with us before we decide to follow him. That makes no sense. He's king. We just come to him for who he is. And he's bathed in myrrh. What will be your response to this king? Will you attempt to kill him by explaining him away? Uh, will you be embarrassed by him, by loving him too much? Will you make him just a little bit less unnecessary by saying, what really matters is that you're just a good person? Jesus actually dying, a little bit unnecessary, just be a good person. Or will you receive him? Will you receive him? Will you surrender? Will you worship him? Will you make every single day of 2022 about him? He's not a thing in our life. He is the thing. What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be for Denver Press? I want that for me. Let's do this together. Stumbling sometimes, but let's do this together. Amen. Amen.